I welcome those joining us over uh, uh, Facebook Live, over YouTube. Sabbath blessings to each one of you. We're about to get started into our study here this morning. Before we do, let's have a word of prayer together. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together here and to, to fellowship together, to sing praises to your name, to learn from your holy word, Father. We pray humbly that you send the Holy Spirit to be with each and every one of us. We pray that you will give us discernment and uh, wisdom as we continue to look at the sin issue and specifically principles on how to deal with sin. Uh, we pray that we may have a right understanding of these things and above all that you will cultivate within us a love for the truth and a love for each other. Uh, may we have that love that Jesus has for us and uh, and have compassion and love for those um, that we wish to save as he does. Father, I pray you be with those who couldn't be with us this morning. I'll be very near to them. We think of the young man who's George has said is having uh, uh, bleeding issues. We pray that you be very near to him and and all those on our prayer list. Uh, and uh, Lord, be with your church so we can be prepared for what's coming on the world to be a light uh, to those seeking the truth. We pray that you forgive us our sins. We claim the blood that Jesus shed for us at Calvary. And give me the words to speak this morning. I humbly ask these favors. In Jesus' blessed name, for he's so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I've entitled this particular study uh, with a question. What about sin in the church? And we've been talking about the sin issue. We're going to get back to it. And um, so we're going to look at this. We looked at corporate... Uh, responsibility, corporate accountability, corporate sin. Uh, the last few times we've been looking at this subject. Now, what do we do about it? Now we know what sin is, and and we see the ramifications, and have defined it, and and we can recognize it, um, and and not just as an individual. Uh, what do we do about it? We see it in the church. What are the steps that God has laid out? You know, when I thought about this. Uh, Particular subject, um, being a, a history buff, I I couldn't help but think back uh, to the founding of this country, the United States. Uh, on May 15th in 1776, the Second Continental Congress, they were meeting there in Independence Hall there in Philadelphia, and they issued a resolve, uh, a resolve to the 13 colonies, and the resolve said this. Adopt such a government as shall, in the opinion of the representatives of the people, best conduce to the safety and happiness of their constituents in particular, and America in general. And what emerged, uh, friends, was the most extensive documentation of the powers of government and the rights of the people that the world has ever witnessed, and probably ever will witness. Um, the primary purpose of these declarations and these bills was to outline the objectives of government, you know, the corpus, the body, the corporation of the United States, to secure the right to life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness. 
um, the government that was chosen uh, to secure these rights was declared universally to be a republican form of government. A representative republic. That's what this country uh, uh, is. I don't know so much anymore. You know, and let me tell you that a republic is quite a bit different than a democracy. And, I'll, and when I hear people say that we live in a, a democracy, I, I cringe. I cringe a little bit. Uh, democ democracies are based on majority rule. And uh, that's not what this, this country, the government of this country, uh, was intended to be. Nor was it when it was founded. Um, and much like the church, a representative form of church. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, all the states, when you look back at history, all the states in the United States, except for Pennsylvania, um, they embraced a two-chamber legislature. And all the states, except for Massachusetts, installed a weak executive branch and denied the governor the power to veto bills of the legislature. So it was the people who were in charge, you see. And all accepted the notion that the legislative branch should be preeminent, but at the very same time, they endorsed the concept that the liberty of the people was in danger from corruption of the representatives, much like the church is in danger from corrupt leaders. A lot of parallels here. Thus, each state constitution, if you go and you look at them, they embraced fair checks and balances to limit government and promote individual liberty. Now, you know, that's a nice history lesson, Pastor Joel. <laughs> but uh, what has this to do with God's church and the sin issue? Well, the question comes, how do we deal with the sin issue, uh, not only at an individual level between each other, uh, but also at the corporate level within the church itself? And this is the same kind of thought the Second Continental Congress had when determining what form of government to have. What kind of organization does the, the, the Bible speak about that would, as the Congress said, best conduce the, to the safety and happiness of their constituents, that would be the members in particular, and the church in general. The parallels... Uh, uh, friends, between the principles of organization of these United States and, and that of which you find in the organization of God's church are, are rather remarkable, uh, but most today are rather blind to it, sad to say. Um, God's ways are always the best ways, isn't that true? And the founders recognized that, that true liberty comes from the source of all liberty and freedom of conscience, and that's God. And so they put these principles to read in the Constitution of this country in the best way that they knew how. They saw how God had laid out uh, the, the principles of organization, you see, and, and the checks and balances that God had in governing that organization to keep it from falling into apostasy, which is to form a different church organization. We've studied this before. Um, thus joining the Antichrist organization known as Babylon Fallen. So they incorporated the same type of principles to organize, to organize this republic uh, form of government with its checks and balances to protect it, you see, from, from despots and tyranny, not just from without, 
but mainly more so from within. So, what are these checks and balances that are to protect the church uh, um, um, from the ravages of sin and, and, and apostasy? And, not just that, uh, to promote the welfare of its members and the corpus itself, the body itself. Well, that's the topic of our study here this morning. How do we deal with the sin issue in the corpus, the body, the church? What about sin in the church? Well, as we begin, we're going to start in the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. In the fifth chapter of Daniel, we find uh, an interesting scenario um, concerning the kingdom of Babylon and its leader at the time. His name was Belshazzar. Babylon was under siege by the Medo-Persians. Um, but her ruler had no care. He had no worries you know, about the Medes and the Persians. He, I mean, he had enough. The way Babylon was built was remarkable. He, he, they could sustain themselves within those walls for up to 20 years. So a siege, he wasn't worried about that. He had no cares or worries uh, other than the party that he had planned for this particular day. And it was during this drunken uh, uh, revelry that Belshazzar ordered that the vessels of the temple of the Creator God, that's our God, uh, which his grandfather, if you recall, had taken from his triumphant victory uh, of Jerusalem, well, Belshazzar, he ordered that these vessels be brought to the party so that he and his guests could drink from them in honor to their idols. Well, our Creator God did not take kindly uh, to the mocking of his divinity, and so he sent a message to Belshazzar in the form of a hand that appeared to the king and all his guests, just a hand, that's all it was. And the hand wrote a message on the wall for the king. And uh, by the way, this is where we get the old saying, the handwriting is on the wall. Did you know that? But Belshazzar was so afraid when he saw this hand, that the Bible says his knees smote one against another. His knees smote one against another. Meaning they knocked. His knees were knocking. The king and his servants, they couldn't interpret the message of the hand that it had written on the wall. So he sent for the prophet Daniel. And here is the message God sent to Belshazzar as interpreted by the prophet uh, Daniel. We find it in chapter 5 of Daniel, verses 25 to 28. And this is the writing that was written. Many, many tekel eupharsin. And this is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole story of that particular episode, but I'll ask you, was God true to his words that were written on that wall? What happened uh, to Babylon that very night? Do you know? Let's look at Daniel 5, verses 30 and 31. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, 
And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. He was 62 years old. Now, God was true to his word, wasn't he? But what got my attention in this chapter here, and in particular this in incident, are the words that are found in verse 27. The writing said, Thou art weighed in the balances. Thou art weighed in the balances. You see, the message to Belshazzar was one of judgment, wasn't it? God told Belshazzar that he had been judged, he'd been weighed, and judged to be guilty. Now what struck me was that God used a system here, you see, to judge Belshazzar. God is not arbitrary, and I'll tell you, friends, never listen to anyone who says otherwise. He used a system. God is a God of order and principle, and he used that order and those principles to weigh Belshazzar. He used a system that has checks and balances in order to render a righteous verdict against the king. Now, not only does God use the same system for all of us, he teaches us to use it too. For God hates sin, and he wants uh, us to hate it like he does and deal with it like he wants us to. And too many times I, uh, I mean, in my experience, I hear excuses for sin, uh, particularly in the church. Uh, and I hear that we're not to um, judge others. And so the sin often remains unchecked and then pervades throughout the body as a disease does, you see. Uh, and so, friends, we're going to take a look at some principles on how to correctly deal with sin within the church. And I'm going to, to share God's system of checks and balances uh, on how to properly deal with this sin issue. And I want to emphasize uh, that these principles deal with those who are in the church, and, and not those who are not members of the church, for the church has no authority authority over non-members, those uh, may be classified as unbelievers, maybe. Uh, but uh, only God has actual authority over unbelievers, and uh, we should thank him for that. Um, I heard a sermon not long ago from a preacher who was teaching that we're not to judge anyone, ever, and I was disappointed that he didn't make a clear distinction um, from God's word concerning righteous and unrighteous judgment. And so we're going to take a look at that um, uh, before, you know, right here at the beginning so we can get that straightened out. Uh, you see, the sad thing is, though, that these kinds of messages from the pulpits have brought nothing but confusion and, and enabled Satan to cast righteousness uh, verily right out the, the doors of the church. And if we as ministers and leaders of God's faithful don't stand up and call sin by its right name, as Jesus did, and that's a key, <laughs> as Jesus did, then we should be so sh shocked when we see the church in the condition that it's in. Now, while it's true, and we'll find this out in a moment, um, that we cannot judge the motives and intents of the heart of anyone, we can judge their fruits. In Matthew 7 and verse 16, notice what Jesus said. He said, ye shall know them by their fruits. Now why would Jesus even say that if we're not to judge anyone? He said, ye shall know them by their fruits. So we must have the ability to judge in some kind of way 
by their fruits. Why? Why would we need to judge their fruits? In John 7 and verse 24, Jesus said, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And that's the key right there. So, according to the Savior, there is a time and place that God's people must exercise righteous judgment. Now, let's go to one of the most, well, I believe it's one of the most misunderstood scriptures in all the Bible. Back to Matthew chapter 7. So we look at this judging that Jesus is talking about. Let's look at Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. This is where he started it all. He said, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now the word judge in this verse... It's Strong's number 2919. It's the Greek word krino, which primarily means, as it's translated, to judge, to determine, to condemn. Now that's a key there. To condemn. So what exactly does Christ's statement mean in Matthew 7? Does it mean that we are never to judge in any circumstance? That doesn't matter, you know, what, what a member does in the church or out of the church? Is that what Jesus is talking about? Are we never to judge any situation, but just passively let fellow church members do whatever they're going to do? And, you know, if it's sin, well, you don't say nothing about it because, you know, you're not to judge. Is that what it means? Well, no, that's not what it means. <laughs> that's not what it means. Jesus is referring here to judging another person's motives not to judging the right or wrong of their acts their fruits god alone is uh, you know competent to judge men's motives because of the fact friends that he alone is able to read men's innermost thoughts he knows the heart we don't we don't know so we can't judge a person's motives we don't know what their motives really are but we can see their fruits. Now remember, Jesus said to judge righteous judgment. Okay? And so, we can't uh, read the heart. We can only read the fruits, see the fruits, and we must act accordingly in a righteous way. In Hebrews 4 and verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here we see that it's the word of God that is quick. So it's God, you see. We are able to discern only the outward appearance. And this is what Jesus is saying. And we're not able to discern the heart. So what happens? Sometimes we, we step out of bounds. We think we know a person's motives, and we inevitably make mistakes, don't we? So, Jesus is not referring to discrimination by which a Christian is to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong, but rather to the habit of a habit that we have to, to sharp and usually unjust criticism and condemnation of another person. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is also telling us that the measure we give will be the measure we receive. For injustice uh, usually provokes injustice. Have you noticed that? But more than that, uh, the injustice of one man toward his fellow man provokes divine judgment as well, as Jesus taught in the parable uh, of the unforgiving servant. You can uh, go and study that. Now, we may condemn the offense, but like God, we must ever be ready to forgive the offender. We can extend mercy uh, to the offender without in any way condoning uh, the evil that they may have done. And this is where the saying, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner comes from. But the problem today is that rarely is the sin hated enough or the sinner loved enough to compassionately rebuke them, as Jesus did. Another thing to consider, too, is that if we do judge righteously, being led by the Holy Spirit, it's the only way you can do it, uh, we will be judged in the same manner, righteously. Maybe not by our fellow humans, but definitely by God. You see, the Bible says that we, we will reap what we sow. So, let us sow righteousness. Amen, friends? Because if we do that, we're going to reap righteousness. Let's continue looking at this and see how Jesus expanded upon these verses about judging. Look at Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. He said, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then, notice what he says here. This is very important. He says, First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Jesus is telling us that the, the first thing that needs to be done before we can be in a position to judge righteously is for us to be in a spiritual spiritual condition where we can see clearly. You know, being an old carpenter myself, um, there have been a number of times that I've gotten a speck of sawdust in my eye. It's not pleasant. And I'm sure that as a carpenter in Nazareth that Jesus may have gotten sawdust or a, a splinter or two of wood in his eye. He had experience, you see, with wood. And he knew what he was talking about concerning the moat and used it to teach a lesson about how to judge righteously. But how often do we see, friends, uh, professed Christians express profound indignation at the course that others have taken or are presumed, <laughs> presumed to have taken only to have later events reveal that they themselves are guilty of the very sins of which they accuse the others? It happens all too often, doesn't it? And this was true of the Pharisees, you know, who, who brought uh, to Jesus the woman taken in adultery, you recall, uh, and also Simon when he judged Mary. It's only when we're ready and willing to suffer ourselves, if need be, in order to help our erring 
brother that we can see clearly enough to be of any help to him? What is the, what, what is the motivation uh, uh, for us to rebuke sin? Is it we're motivated for love and care for that erring one? Or to show that they're wrong, thus puff ourselves up, up that we're right? So Jesus is saying that there are conditions, you see, we must meet in order to qualify as having clear vision to make sound judgments uh, regarding our brethren, regarding the church. Now, we know that Jesus said that without him we can do nothing. Isn't that true? So we have to be born again believers in Christ and have our eyes cleansed by him before we can see clearly enough to cast out the mote from a brother's eye. You know, Paul said, I die daily. We need to have that daily uh, filling of the Holy Spirit to take away the scales from our eyes, take away that fogginess. And remember the bread of life, that the word of God is as a sword we read about, right? That cuts. And so as we study God's word, as we have the Holy Spirit alive in our hearts, we're filled with love for each other. And that's the motivation for judging righteously. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to get into this. Uh, this is an example of open sin uh, in the church. Open sin in the church and how the Apostle Paul counseled to deal with it. And uh, there's a lesson here for us. This will help us to deal with sin within the, the corpus well, not only of the church, but in the family unit, which will be carried out into the church as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's look at verse 1. <clears throat> it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. Well, what Paul's saying is, even the Gentiles consider it a terrible act, what's going on in the church there at Corinth. Even the Gentiles see it. He goes on, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For verily, for I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already. Do you think Paul's judgment was righteous judgment? Yeah, let's find out. He says, Have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. Well, Paul had enough, you see, corroborated evidence from credible witnesses to make a righteous judgment without actually being present there. There's a lesson for us, too. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? By the way, what is leaven? Do you know what leaven is? Leaven is applied uh, to that which, though small in quantity yet by its influence thoroughly pervades a thing. Either in a good sense, as in 
oh, let's say the parable of Matthew 13, where Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, or in a bad sense, of a, a, a bad influence, as is the case here that we're looking at. This is why Paul says that. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So Paul's saying that a little sin left in the church unattended is going to spread. And it will continue to spread like fire in the stubble and create bigger problems unless it's dealt with head on and extinguished with the water of the word. Let's go to verse 7. Paul continues. <clears throat> he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. Now, by the way, what Paul's talking about here is a communion. Um, he's not talking about one of the Jewish feasts. He's talking about communion here. So he says, Therefore let us keep the communion, okay, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. In other words, what he's saying is, we're not to isolate completely from everyone, but we're to, to be in the world, but not of the world. You see, this is what Paul's saying. Verse 11, But now I've written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not to eat. We'll get back to that in a minute. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth, which we talked about before. God, we can't, we have no authority over those who are outside uh, of God's church, outside of the family of God. And Paul's saying the same thing here. He said, God judges them. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person, that wicked person that's in the church, that open sinner. So, again, who's Paul addressing here in these scriptures? He's not addressing those outside of the church, is he? No. Is Paul addressing the world church? <laughs> no, he's not. Paul is addressing the church at Corinth, the body of believers calling themselves Christians at Corinth. He's dealing, and here's something for us to learn, friends. He is dealing with this local church problem at the local level to begin with. You get that? Because sadly, someone would take their local church problems and broadcast them all to all the churches and even the world before biblical principles have been carried out in dealing with the sin issue at the local level. They make a grave mistake by doing this. We must explicitly adhere, friends, to God's principles in dealing with sin in the church. You see, the object... Of, of these principles in dealing with sin is to bring repentance and reconciliation 
between members in the church and not to be a reproach to the world, you know, possibly um, destroying uh, any witness we may have. So there is a lot of carefulness that is warranted here. There is a time and a place for everything, and we must follow the principles uh, as directed by the Spirit of God. But Paul's also telling us here that we must deal decidedly with those within the church who know the truth and yet choose to commit known sins, such as this man in the church at Corinth who was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, this was not his mother. Okay, He wasn't sleeping with his mother. He was sleeping with another of his father's wives. We don't know much about the father. Father may have been dead, or his wife may have run away, or, or maybe was divorced. We don't know any of that. What we do know is that the crime was punishable by death, according to Jewish law. And interestingly enough, uh, the Roman law also forbid such a relationship, even as corrupt as Rome was. But the man that Paul's addressing here and speaking about, the man was in open sin. Everyone in the church knew what he was doing, and he didn't care that they knew what he was doing. It wasn't a rumor, but it was attested to as a fact by many credible witnesses. The church was even letting this man partake of communion, which is what Paul was addressing. Even knowing he was in open sin and flaunting it, friends. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the Corinthians show good judgment? Absolutely not. The church members, you see, and, and this is what happens all too often, the church members were self-complacent and proud of their spiritual status. And instead of you know, uh, uh, hanging their heads in shame that, that such great wickedness had broken out in the midst of the church, now, this does not mean that they were elated or, or, or proud uh, because of this evil thing in the church, but they were filled with spiritual pride in spite of it. What they should have done was humbled themselves before the Lord and taken steps to remedy the situation. Did you know something? Maybe they were thinking, hey, judge not lest ye be judged. Hmm, makes you wonder, doesn't it? But the presence of gross wickedness in the church is always a cause for sorrow to those members who have the best interests of their brethren at heart and who are jealous for the good name of the church. The righteous cannot be self-satisfied and happy when a brother in the church loses his way and falls into grievous sin. It goes back to what's our motivation. Do we truly love each other? Something else we must consider and uh, this goes along with one of the principles we're going to we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, is that the prohibition by Paul included social meals as well as the Lord's supper? Did you catch what Paul said? That he said in verse um, where is it? He says not to even eat with him. We're not to eat. Not just communion. We're not to socialize. Believers should 
do nothing that would give observers reason to believe that defiant transgressors of God's law are recognized as Christian brothers in good standing. What kind of message does that give? The standard of truth and purity has to be held high. If it's not held high, friends, then it weakens the witness uh, when you call someone to repent. What are they to repent of? Right? I'll tell you in my experiences, and this is a sad thing, many times unbelievers, in a lot of cases even today, they can tell if an act is good or bad. They can tell. And if they are to be saved at last by the blood of Christ, they should not see hypocrisy in God's church because it ruins the witness and call to come to Christ. Paul was stressing this to the church at Corinth because the enemies of Christianity in that particular area, they accused believers of various forms of crime and vice, and it was probably true. But if it became known that Christians tolerated in, you know, in their church or had close co- uh, contact with wicked and immoral persons, those accusations and reports would receive all kinds of support and be considered reliable, you see. Therefore, it was necessary to withdraw completely from wickedly impenitent apostates and let it be known that the church had no connection with them. Remember, this man... He didn't care that anybody knew it or not. And so, that's the only way the church can be kept pure, you see, and free from any kind of contaminating influence of uh, those who uh, are apostate sinners, those who refuse to repent, those who refuse to give up uh, sin, give up their wickedness. You know, the... Um, Corinthian believers should have been very concerned over this evil and should have proceeded to remove that offender from the church according to the disciplinary measures that uh, are laid out in the scriptures. The sin should have been immediately rebuked by the elders. I mean, now, compassionately, righteously, as Christ would, and call them to repentance. But it wasn't. Like I said, maybe they said, Oh, judge not, lest ye be judged. But not until Paul made it clear that they were failing in their responsibility did the church do what was needed and these two unrepentant uh, persons were disfellowshipped. They were removed from the church. And you know what happened? You know, later on, we read about it, uh, I think in the second epistle, this act by the church eventually caused that young man to see that he was guilty of sin and he repented. And you return to the church. And that's the whole reason. Well, I can't say the whole reason. That's one of the main reasons. Is is to bring to repentance and have reconciliation between that person and God. The principles that God has laid out must be conducted from proper motives, too. Like I said, it's got to be from a heart of care and love. Never should anger or pride, uh, revenge, uh, or just dislike, or any carnal sentiment of the natural heart, prompt church members to take action against an offending brother. On the contrary, there should be compassionate love and tender pity 
manifested toward that person together with care lest anyone else fall into the same error people want to see love and compassion that's what draws them to Christ you see the Corinthians were guilty of faulty spiritual eyesight they had motes in their eyes as Jesus said and one reason they were in such a condition is explained in the second epistle to the Corinthians 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 Paul said examine yourselves be honest take a look at yourself compared to the word of God examine yourself whether you be in the faith prove your own selves he says know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates you know what that word means it means unprincipled totally bad corrupt depraved that's a pretty strong word isn't it so we must examine ourselves and remove the beam from our eye so we may clear, uh, see clearly and make righteous judgments. The church members at Corinth were failing to do this, and so the results were that grievous sins were prevalent among them that were going unchecked. And this was affecting their own spiritual walk. Um, to a point where they were allowing the unrepentant open sinner to participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, there are cases when there is sin in the church, uh, but it is an open sin where all can see it, like this one was. There are a couple of Bible instances that we can look at to see how this was dealt with. First, let's look at the case of Ananias and Sapphira that's recorded in Acts chapter 5. Uh, verse 1, Acts 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And, and, and what he means by that is, men couldn't see that he was lying, necessarily, but God could. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. One of the first things I, I want to point out here is that the mere 
retention uh, by Ananias of part of the selling price of the land was not in itself a sin. And this is where many get mixed up. Um, he wasn't under any compulsion to give anything. Uh, he had professed a willingness to give, but he was not obliged to give any fixed amount. The money was his own, you know, to give in whole or in part or however. The sin was that the part that he brought was given as though it were the whole amount of the sale, and this was the deception. It was an acted lie on his and his wife's part. That's what got him. And Peter traced the evil to its source. See, His knowledge of what Ananias and Sapphira uh, were doing, how did he know? How did he know what they had done? Well, Peter had the gift of discernment. And don't miss that. The Holy Spirit gave him the gift to see what had done that, that they had done. And so, here Peter had the, the Holy Spirit, the gift of discernment. In sad contrast to that, Ananias had opened his heart to Satan until his mind was full of covetous and deceitful thoughts. And he acted upon those thoughts and committed sin in trying to deceive God. And um, this was a terrible judgment, but completely understandable. Ananias and Sapphira were, uh, don't miss this point too, they were members of the, you could call it the infant apostolic church. The church was at its early stages of organizing. They had drawn near to God. They had heard the truth. They were following. They wanted to learn. They wanted to help the church. They had undoubtedly uh, tasted some of the, the, the heavenly gifts of salvation. Perhaps they had received some of the gifts of the Spirit as well. But by a false spirit, they had committed an act of sacrilege, you see. And so, if it wasn't dealt with, strikingly and visibly met in those early days of the church, well, what would that set the church up for? Those acts may have undermined the entire work of the apostles. <laughs> and what God was trying to do through them. So God interposed here to save his church from greater danger and evils. And it was God himself who weighed Ananias and Sapphira and found them wanting, much like Belshazzar. God dealt with their sins swiftly so all the church could see and learn that God reads the heart. And as you read in verse 11, and because of God's, what God did here, acted swiftly with judgment, says in verse 11, great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. They don't want to do what they did. Right? This is how God was dealing with this secret sin. Let me share this with you. It's from the book Acts of the Apostles, page 73. God hates hypocrisy and falsehood. Let that sink in. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is professing to do one thing, but uh, you don't do it. Professing to be something you're not. Right? God hates hypocrisy and falsehood. 
Ananias and Sapphira practiced fraud in their dealing with God. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and their sin was visited with swift and terrible judgment. Infinite wisdom saw that this signal manifestation of the wrath of God was necessary to guard the young church from becoming demoralized. This judgment testified that men cannot deceive God, that he detects the hidden sin of the heart, and that he will not be mocked. It was designed as a warning to the church to lead them to avoid pretense and hypocrisy and to beware of robbing God. This does not mean that Ananias had not lied at all to men, (laughs) for surely he did, but that his offense lay primarily in the fact that he had presumed to deceive God. All sin is ultimately against God, isn't it? Although it also gravely affects men. Ananias had either ignored God or thought he could deceive him as he had hoped to deceive his brethren. On either count, he was sinning against God and was struck down as an example to the church. And fear of this sort would be a deterrent upon any who would, uh, were not completely sincere in their profession of Christianity. That's why I stressed the word hypocrisy. Let it sink in. God hates hypocrisy. God hates Let that sink in. Sometimes those who have the gift of discernment are uh, moved to act as Peter did in confronting the sinner in an effort to bring forth repentance and warning of coming judgment from God. And uh, in this example, Peter discerned what was going on and confronted the two fraudulent members in an effort to open their eyes to their, their course and bring them to repentance. Peter did not Notice, Peter did not condemn them, but he warned them that they were sinning against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave Peter insight, you see, about it, and he called them on it. And sometimes this is how secret sin is dealt with. You're given discernment from the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice that it was God who meted out the punishment very swiftly in this case, as a warning to all that God is not mocked, And, you know, time and circumstances must be uh, taken into consideration. It was the early church. It had to be done. Now, a second lesson on how to deal with secret sins that exist in the church is found in Joshua chapter 7. And we looked at this example when we talked about corporate sin. As you recall, God had told Joshua that Jericho would fall by the power of God and warned Joshua and the rest of his people that they were not to take anything from Jericho. However, a man named Achan disobeyed God and secretly stole several items from Jericho, and he buried them under his tent. Now, the only ones who knew of this were Achan and his immediate family. No one else, at least up to a certain point, knew of it. Okay, It was a secret sin. Then Joshua gathered, you know, thinking he's still in good favor with God, of course, because of that secret sin. This proves that it was secret. If Joshua knew that that had been done, he would have dealt with it right away. But he didn't know that it had been done. So he gathered a force of 3,000 men and attacked the city of Ai, thinking that God was with them. 
I mean, after all, look what happened to Jericho, right? However, God was not with them because of the secret sin of Achan, and Joshua's attack failed, and as a result, 36 men died. So Joshua, he returns, uh, very troubled, and humbled himself before God, pleading for an answer, and here's what the Lord said. And notice the procedure. This is, we're, we're wanting to learn principles on how to deal with sin in the church. And we're looking at a secret sin here that's in the church, that's in Israel. So notice the procedure that God lays out for Joshua to follow. Joshua chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. Get a drink here, water. Verse 12. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. Up. He's saying, get up. Sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before the enemy. So God's saying, look, you need to make it right. You need to get holy. Sanctification means to be set apart as holy. You need to rid yourself of this accursed thing to be considered holy again. Okay, this is what he's saying. He says, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought... Here's some of the principles here. Now, now notice this. In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof. And the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households. And the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. So there's a methodical approach to searching out and seeking for this accursed thing. So God was telling Joshua how to rectify this. You know, by searching out the sin, and then you can make it right. And so they went tribe by tribe. They got to doing some investigating, okay? You know, and that pared it down, almost like an onion. They were peeling things away. Then they went family by family. And then it got to where, oh, they got it down to one tribe, one particular family line, and then they went individual by individual until the sin was exposed. And when it was, then they were able to deal with it. And only then could God be with his people again and bless them. Notice this from the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 497. When the church is in difficulty, when coldness and spiritual declension exist, giving occasion for the enemies of God to triumph, then, instead of folding their hands and lamenting their unhappy state, let its members inquire if there is not an Achan in the camp. With humiliation, notice how it's done. It's done righteously, as Jesus would. It's done righteously with a heart of love, the love of God. She says, with humiliation... And searching of heart, let each seek to discover the hidden sins that shut out God's presence. Now these were two cases here that we've looked at uh, of secret sin. 
within the church in the two ways that it was dealt with. First, by the spiritual gift of discernment. And second, by the process of humbling the heart and searching it out to discover the hidden sin. And uh, this is where uh, the, the leadership in the church, as Paul, we saw Paul did with open sin, he's a leader in the church and led by example here. This is what another area where the leaders can lead by example as well. And again, it has to be by right motivation. This is why getting to know each other uh, and not just showing up on the Sabbath, but getting to know each other and getting to know the congregation. The Holy Spirit will give discernment, see? And you can see certain things and we're to help each other to grow unto that perfect man that uh, the Bible tells us um, that uh, God wants us to be. So these were two cases of secret sin uh, and how they were dealt with. Another biblical principle God gives his people for dealing with sin in the church, because some people say, well, what if the leader's corrupt? <laughs> what if, you know, what if the leader is sinning? And you can go back to the example with Paul and Corinthians there. Well, the leaders weren't doing what, what they should have been doing, right? So here's something that, that uh, Paul talks about when he's talking to Timothy. Um, this is dealing with sin in the church setting that has to do with public sin of those in position of leadership. 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 and 20. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. He says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now, he's talking about an elder there. He's talking about an overseer. Someone who has been singled out and and chosen uh, in some way by God to oversee the people, to help protect the people, to teach the people, you know, to lead them. They have more responsibility of serving the congregation, see? And Paul is saying, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, them that sin rebuke before all that others may also fear. And sadly, I will tell you something, friends, that I have seen this scripture abused on numerous occasions and taken out of its context and uh, um, and done with the wrong motivation. Many will claim, in, in, in my experience, uh, many will claim verse 20, <laughs> them that sin rebuke before all that others may also may fear. They'll claim verse 20 without noticing verse 19. And so they jump the gun and they make false accusations against maybe a minister before confirming that there are more than one witness. The witnesses are credible and the reports are accurate. I've had accusations against myself. I've had accusations against my family, my wife, such things. They are out of line in God's procedures of doing things. It turns out the witnesses were not credible. They jumped the gun. (laughs) And so, you know, let's not jump the gun. Let's not be guilty of bearing false witness ourselves, right? Let me read something to you again. Let's go back to book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 386. Try to wrap this up here. The Bible specially teaches us to beware of lightly bringing accusation against those whom God has called to act as his ambassadors. The Apostle Peter, describing a class who are abandoned sinners, says, 
Presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. And Paul, in his instruction for those who are placed over the church, says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. He who has placed upon men the heavy responsibility of leaders and teachers of his people will hold the people accountable for the manner in which they treat his servants. We are to honor those whom God has honored. The judgment visited upon Miriam should be a rebuke to all who yield to jealousy and murmur against those upon whom God lays the burden of his work. So, in his letter to Timothy, Paul is saying that when it comes to rebuking a a minister, a pastor, a minister, a teacher, gospel teacher, uh, a, a medical missionary, you know, somebody dealing with spreading the gospel, there must first be a record of of these wrongs that is attested to by credible witnesses. The rebuke cannot be based upon hearsay or the testimony of just one witness. may not know what their motivation is. See, And how we are to deal with sins committed by members, um, not in leadership, well, I'm going to talk about that in part two when we look at Matthew chapter 18. Now, a lot of these principles, too, let me say this. A lot of these principles, they come together. They overlap in areas. So, you know, take that in into account as well. You know, I've, <laughs> I've had some take me to account over uh, a word that I've said, you know, in, in preaching. And I have to tell you, friends, we're not to make a brother an offender for a word. We're all humans, and we all do make mistakes. We often make mistakes when we're speaking. Sometimes we get our words mixed up. Sometimes the word that's in our brain doesn't come out of our mouth. Or a different word pops out, even though we're thinking something different. We say things we didn't intend to say. Sometimes our mouth doesn't uh, say what our brain means for it to say, and and it's just a simple mistake. It happens to me from time to time as I speak and preach quite a lot. Um, but I'll tell you, all will misspeak from time to time. It's part of our human frame. Now, however, if if the charge has been confirmed by credible witnesses, more than one, and it is a public sin, then the member must be rebuked before all in a public way, before the other elders and the church. Uh, this is not... Now, again, these, there are steps to this. Paul, dealing with that sin, that public open sin in the church, dealt with it at the local level first. He didn't go public. When it says rebuke public, you got to take your steps right first. You deal with it at the local level. See? And deal with it in the local church, and then it can ripple out. If uh, you know, um, if they don't listen to you, you remove them. I mean, we're so disorganized as a people, friends. We don't understand organization principles. We're scattered about, and there will be people. I've seen it. It's happened with us. Our church disfellowshipped a member, and he said he resigned and he went to a different church or he starts his own. God's principles and organization will protect 
itself from such things happening. And we see too much scattering and disorganization in God's movement today. Um, but you've got to have credible witnesses. And friends, I'll tell you, as I close up here, i pass my time a little bit. If we truly love God and love those who are in this type of situation, the biblical reaction to it may just save them. It may save them. And our inaction may just cost them their eternal life. And it may not just cost them theirs. It may cost us ours. Now, if the one being rebuked does not repent or doesn't even care to hear, then, like I said, Paul told the church at Corinth, they must be removed from the church immediately, and there must not be any socializing with them. Um, They have to be given a chance. This is the way God has dealt with uh, the sin issue from the beginning. Um, You can look at why Israel was taken into captivity. God is still trying to reach us sinners. He's trying to get us to look up to Him. So we have, you know, they have to be given a chance to see how serious their conduct is. And the church has to be seen as a body that does not condone sin in any way because God doesn't. And uh, next uh, Sabbath we'll get into, well, I guess part two, we'll talk more more about individual sin, Matthew chapter 18 and some of those principles involved there. Um, But uh, I hope we can see how do we deal with sin in the church. God has a plan. He has principles laid out for us to follow. We have to have the right motivation. We have to be born of the Spirit of God, which removes the moat from our eyes in order to see clearly and to deal with it with love and compassion. Uh, but call sin by its right name, too. So I hope that uh, this has been a blessing for you. Let's uh, have a word of prayer before we close up. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for uh, Jesus. We thank you for your love and allowing him to come and to take uh, on humanity, uh, be like us, uh, be tempted and always like us, yet never choose to sin, and uh, to take our place and die a death that we deserve. Uh, so that we may have eternal life. We thank you so much for that most precious gift. We pray that you forgive us our sins. Help us, Lord, to learn these principles. And, and, and not just that, Lord, but create in us, in our hearts, a deep, compassionate love, that love that Jesus had for us. May we have that love for each other. So we do these things and have righteous judgment and not from a wicked heart. From, but from a heart of love. Please continue to be with us throughout this day and keep us safe. May we gain the blessing you've promised, not because we're worthy, because Jesus is, and we ask in his name. Amen.